0: joining me on the Healing Compass podcast where we bridge scientific with holistic so that you can be empowered to grow, heal, and overcome in your own way. You are provided various insights and resources on a range of topics from mental health to chronic pain because well-being is not a one-size-fits-all and you hold the compass to your own path. I'm your host, Lori Crow, aka Sway. What message is in store for today? Let's find out. Why hello, thank you for joining me for this special interim bonus episode. Um, It is just going to me uh, flying solo today. I figured this would be a great opportunity for me to break down some um, words and terminology that is used in the mental health realm, Um, you know, terms that are used in neuroscience and psychology and um, biology even that um, may still be kind of fuzzy or confusing or even kind of controversial Um, and I think it could be very helpful for you to just understand the basis of the terms and words that are being used in the mental health field so that when you are looking into something, when you are reading something, when you're listening to a podcast like mine, when you are looking at social media um, that you'd be able to decipher a little bit better um, what they're trying to convey and also paying attention to the context in which they are applying the word or term. Now there are some uh, terminologies and words that I'm going to use that are um, that have been used more heavily. Lately, uh, especially through social media, that might be kind of um, attention getting words. Uh, I like to call them fire words. Um, And so I think it will help, again, bring clarity, um, breaking down the science and biology behind some of this. And, um, and I will be citing sources as I go through this. So I'm not just spouting this out. Um, I am referencing this stuff. And of course I am a non-expert. I am studying biopsychology and neuroscience. This is my, um, academic path, but I wanted to show that I am utilizing sources, trusted sources, in order to better understand and have a grasp on the words and terminology that is being used in the mental health realm. Um, So without further ado, we're going to get into it. We're going to start kind of basic, and then we're going to peel back and really get into um, a deeper understanding of some of the terminology and the differences between different types of words that are being used um yeah so here we go um so i'm gonna start out with one of my favorite words neuroscience neuroscience so let's have an understanding what neuroscience is so this is what the field that i'm getting into and it is the study of how the nervous system develops Um, It's about learning its structure and what it does. And this includes the brain. So it's, you know, the brain and then the whole entire nervous system. And so um, that description comes from Georgetown University. And just a little insight of uh, where neuroscience came from. Um, We can even see how it was... um, It was utilized and people were trying to understand the brain way back even to like the 17th century. Um, Back then there were hieroglyphics on uh, papyrus that was discovered showing Egyptians um, that they possibly had a vague understanding of head trauma. Well, back then, they were under the assumption that the heart was at the seat of intelligence. And so during the mummification process, they would leave the heart intact um, of the body, but they would remove the brain. And they did some studies on the brain when they removed it. Well, modern neuroscience, fast forwarding now, was formally founded in the 20th century. Pavlov, uh, you might have heard that name before, contributed to a subsidiary uh, area of study called neurophysiology. And so that's basically how the brain is uh, working with the body. And there was a long period of time where even scientists thought that the brain and the body functioned separately separately. But now we know they don't. They work together. So that is the gist of neuroscience. Whereas with like psychology, it's just to, to put it very simply is the study of behavior. But it, it's deeper than that. There's You know, there's a lot more um, complexity to it than that. But um, that's the difference. So think of neuroscience as studying like the biology Behind a lot of the um, neurological and psychiatric conditions that we develop, so let's talk about this. A lot of times, we hear the buzz of um, in in stories and social media um, and studies. Uh, that use the word genetics, like genetic factor or genetics are involved. This could be, um, you know, genetically passed on. Let's talk about that for a minute because I think what I'm noticing is that there's not specification in what type of genetics because there's actually, um, uh, genetics is an umbrella term. But there's another term under that called epigenetics. And I think it's important that when you hear genetic, genetic factor, um, that you understand what type of genetic. And I'm gonna explain all of that here. So genetics is the study of how individual genes or group of genes are involved in health and disease. Um, Understanding genetic factors and genetic disorders is important in learning more about promoting health and uh, preventing disease. So genetics is, again, an umbrella term. Um, Genetics can influence DNA, but the subsidiary um, term or study, area of study under genetics is epigenetics, EPI epigenetics. So, epigenetics is a study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. So, unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and they don't change the DNA sequence, but they can change how your body reads a DNA sequence, and then responds in the body. Um, So I hope that makes sense. So think of this as genetic, the overall umbrella term. Um, Genetics can influence DNA, however the term epigenetics is the study of how genes are expressed in the body from reading the DNA code, the DNA sequence. So think of it as like the DNA is a book and the book was already written. Okay. Then, and that would be your genetics. Okay. It has already been written. Then think of epigenetics is how it is read and interpreted, and that can be different for everybody. So it's a kind of a subjective, um, process and mechanism. So psychiatric and neurological conditions generally do not alter DNA. Um, it is not a book that is written, but they can alter genes and gene expression, the epigenetics, right? How they are read and how they are expressed. Now, a side note, I want to clarify something, and this, to me this is just really fascinating, um, is uh, the difference between DNA and RNA. So we might have heard the term um, as of recent in the past few years of mRNA um, vaccines for 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 COVID, for COVID nineteen. And so here's something fascinating. So DNA is found in the nucleus of a cell. The RNA doesn't um, necessarily. It doesn't sit in the nucleus, but it does enter the cell and it reads from the DNA in order to create um, protein chains or enzymes to be able to go do their functions in the body. So it's, it's like an interpreter um, of a book, uh, the DNA. And so um, what's really interesting is that I have learned over the years that different viruses can affect the DNA. And it, there are viruses that don't affect the, the DNA. So for instance, there are genetic um, traits found in viruses, even like something like a cold that can mess with your DNA. <laughs> um, but then there are viruses out there like COVID-19 that it doesn't penetrate the, um, the nucleus of the cell does not affect the DNA, but it can influence and mimic the RNA. And so that's where the design of these um, mRNA vaccines came from, um, something that had already been studied, but now put into use for COVID-19, is that it um, basically goes in the body and acts like the RNA to be able to, you know, trick the virus. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to bring that clarification, but it's really interesting to know that there are different um, uh, viruses that can contribute to DNA alteration um, and mutation, as well as um, knowing that different conditions um, can be affected by um, DNA alteration. So very interesting. Okay, now let's talk about um, another word that we might have heard quite a bit about, and that's neuroplasticity, one of my other favorite words. So neuroplasticity is the ability of the nervous system to change its activity in response to intrinsic or extrinsic stimuli, so inner or outer stimuli, by recognizing its structure, functions, or connections after injuries, such as a stroke or traumatic brain injury. That's from the um, National Institute of Health. And so basically, this is so cool, is that everybody, so as a baby, you're born with very high neuroplasticity. That means that your cognitive function and memory and all this kind of stuff is developing very rapidly. And when they say children are sponges, that is literal truth. Because of the neuroplasticity, the neurons in the body and the brain of a baby haven't, they haven't wired yet. They haven't wired together yet. And the way they wire together is by exposure of um, the changes in activity, um, in response to what's going on in the body as well as what's going on out. So like what they pick up with all of their senses. So neuroplasticity allows, um, a reversal of any type of, um, any type of response. So the older we get, the neuroplasticity, Plasticity goes down. So it's not as prominent as when you are young, right? Where you are absorbing a lot. It does start to uh, wither a little bit, but it, it still exists. Like we still have neuroplasticity to the day we pass, which means we can change the neural pathways, the neural firing, of, like how our neurons fire in the body. Um, that means that we can learn new skills, we can develop new um, talents and whatnot. And of course, the older you get, I'm sure you've heard the term um, teaching an old dog new tricks it tends to be harder. Yes, because we don't have as much neuroplasticity as we get older. However, and so it might take a little bit more time for us to practice, to absorb, to retrain the brain, retrain our muscles, retrain the neurons to fire in a different direction, to learn that new skill, to learn that new talent, whether it be um, a new language or, um, you know, riding a bike or whatever that may be. And so neuroplasticity is, is a wonderful thing that we've been able to discover because we are learning how to um, do what's called neural reprogramming or neural rewiring. We did a wonderful episode on that recently with a couple of my guests, and we pretty much in almost every episode that I have, we end up on that conversation of how we can rewire the brain and rewire the nervous system. It takes practice though. So um, that's to me, that's really fascinating neuroplasticity. So we all have it. It's something that's really cool and that we can utilize to our benefit. Now let's talk about um, different types of conditions. So let's talk about what neurological conditions are versus psychiatric conditions. I know that there's been some confusion and I think these words are kind of like used interchangeably. Um, in media, social media, and even studies I come across. Um, and there can be controversy around this because I think that there is still um, some, even some t- scientists and psychologists that, that might um, argue um, this. But I want to share with you what I found. And so again, take it with a grain of salt. You can do more research into this to have a better understanding And then I'm just going to add my non-expert two cents at the end here. So I'm going to be um, reading directly from an article published by the BMJ, which is the British Medical Journal. And this is directly quoted. This is what it says. We are witnessing a revolution in the clinical science of the mind as the techniques of basic neuroscience are successfully applied in mental health. It has become clear that disorders of the mind are rooted in dysfunction of the brain, while the neurological disorders interact strongly with psychological and social factors and often cause psychological symptoms. Yet the dominant classifications of mental disorder, the International Classifications of Diseases, the ICD, and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, continue to draw a sharp distinction between disorders of the mind, the province of psychiatry, and the disorders of the brain, the province of neurology. As these classifications are currently under revision, it is timely to consider a radical rethinking. The current line of demarcation between disorders of mind and of brain is counterproductive for clinicians and patients on both sides of the line. We propose, therefore, that psychiatric disorders should be classified as disorders of the central nervous system. This would be the brain and spinal cord, by the way. This will update our classificatory system in the light of contemporary neuroscience and foster the integration of psychiatry into the mainstream of medicine where it belongs. Now, taken from an article of Psychology Today, this says... Neurological diseases are, by definition, diseases of the central and peripheral nervous system, and they can be generally identified on the basis of objective medical testing, such as electroencephalography, EEG, for epilepsy, and magnetic resonance resonance imaging, MRI, for brain tumor. Many neurological diseases can be localized. In contrast, mental or psychiatric illness is characterized by a clinically significant disturbance in an individual's thoughts, feelings, or behaviors. So this Psychology Today article, actually mentions that there is a distinction between neurological disorders and psychiatric conditions. This is what it says. Neurological disorders include epilepsy, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and types of dementia including Alzheimer's disease. Psychiatric disorders include things like depression, schizophrenia, PTSD, ADHD, and yes, autism. Uh, so the reason why they concluded this is because they run a, a, a meta-analysis. So this means they observed uh, multiple studies to come to this conclusion. And they um, they looked over 168 studies uh, that had each a total of about 4,000 participants and controls. And they all showed um, distinguished differences in brain anatomy and function with the various conditions to be able to say, well, this, um, deems to be more neurological versus psychiatric and vice versa. So there's that, like I said, take it with a grain of salt. Um, my two cents, like I said, my non-expert two cents, but what I have soaked in, uh, thus far about all of this is that everything is neurological, everything. So I I believe that our nervous system is our, um, well, it's our computer that's in our body, right? And if our computer is malfunctioning, other things are gonna malfunction. All the other organs and systems of the body are gonna malfunction if our nervous system is not functioning correctly. So I know that there are going to be neurological traits to every condition, even if it's a physical condition. Um, and it could be because something neurologically was misfiring. Okay. That's how I see it. But if there are obvious distinctions, um, of course there's some overlap, but if there are obvious distinctions between brain anatomy and function of said neurological and psychiatric conditions, okay, cool. (laughs) Now, let's talk about these words. These words we have probably heard a lot about lately. They're um, pretty much blasted on all social media outlets right now. And I really want to bring some clarification because I'm hearing a lot of, um, there's a lot of misinformation going on and a lot of uh, misleading. And so I think it's very important that we break these terms down right now. So we have the words neurodivergent, neurodiverse, and neurotypical. So let's talk about these. So let's talk about neurodiversity first because neurodiversity is the exact term coined by Judy Singer, who was an Australian sociologist, um, in order to support and promote equality and inclusion of neurological minorities is what she would call them. Um, so here is a Harvard definition of neurodiversity. It is the idea that people experience and interact with the world around them in many different ways. There is no one right way of thinking, learning, and behaving, and differences are not viewed as a deficit. Okay, so neurodiversity means it's all inclusive. Everybody thinks, operates, learns, behaves, functions differently. So the word neurodiversity refers to the diversity of all people, but it is often used in the context of ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, as well as other neurological or developmental conditions such as ADHD and learning disabilities. And I highlighted neurological or developmental, because we just had that conversation of the difference between neurological versus psychiatric conditions. So again, taking this with a grain of salt, uh, the words that I'm sharing with you coming out of these sources now. And then neurotypical and neurodivergent, let's talk about those neurodivergent is obviously a hot word that we hear a lot about lately in the mental health community. It is a non-clinical term. Um, and it is to describe an individual. So whereas neurodiversity isn't about an individual, it's about everybody. Um, neurodivergent is a, an individualistic term that's being used. Um, and it basically means to be different from the neurotypical person. So basically, um, not thinking, behaving, and uh, learning the same as a neurotypical person. So in this category would be autism, ADHD, but also Tourette's and dyslexia. So it's not just for um, people on the spectrum. So um, I'm not a fan of neurodivergent, the term neurodivergent, because I do think that it really brings this um, connotation of separateness. Um, And I... I'm always like a very inclusive person. Like we're all different in some way. And I know many people, um, you know, with autism, ADHD, even Tourette's and dyslexia, things like that, don't really view it as a deficit. They view it even as kind of like a, a superpower or a gift because they're able to tap into a side of their brain or an aspect of their brain and nervous system that a lot of neurotypical people can't, and so I really shy away from using the word neurodivergent. Um, but that's you know that's that's just me. I would rather not have a label and um, rather not put someone in a box and just say you know what we're all neurodiverse and we're all affected for different reasons. And the bottom line is that we're all affected by some sort of a nervous system um, uh, wiring, right? That's me going back to um, how I was saying like everything is affected, um, by the nervous system and how the nervous system functions. So now let's talk about this one. You might've heard this before, maybe, maybe not, but there is an actual, um, term called HSP or highly sensitive person. And so a highly sensitive person displays increased emotional sensitivity a stronger reactivity to both external and internal stimuli, such as pain, hunger, light, temperature, and noise. And they can have a complex inner life, meaning that they can have a really noisy um, inner dialogue. Uh, They can also have disturbed, like a higher than normal disturbed reaction to violence, tension, or feelings of being overwhelmed. Um, I would consider myself HSP, um, and that it has, in a sense, increased over the years, but more managed over the years, if that makes sense. Um, The moment that I noticed it was increasing is the moment that I really started paying attention to it, becoming aware of it, and learning how to manage it. Um, Those on the spectrum, like ASD or with ADHD, can experience the same kind of things. So again, there's a lot of overlap on what is on the spectrum. What is ADHD? What is anxiety? What is HSP? And so um, speaking of (laughs) anxiety, um, we have anxiety. Let's talk about anxiety for a moment. Um, So there's a difference between anxiety and anxiousness. We've heard those terms before. If you say I'm anxious, that is when it's, it's an acute experience. So it's in the moment experience. I'm anxious. I'm anxious for this trip or I'm anxious to see um, this person I haven't seen in a long time or I'm anxious for this interview. So it's a very acute experience that we're having um, versus anxiety. Anxiety is more of a, um, a chronic, a uh, long-term type of experience. Um, and both are going to be uh, relating to a perceived fear. So not necessarily a, um, a noticeable fear or an imminent fear, such as a bear is running after me. It's more of something that we think might happen to us that probably won't happen to us. And then let's talk about, with all of this, going back to tying in with the neurodivergent um, uh, community and whatnot is anxious tics. So I used to be on TikTok and I noticed that a lot of people would say that their anxious tics, their anxious quirks, their behaviors are because of their ADHD or autism. Let me peel this back for you a little bit. So these are symptoms. Anxious tics are symptoms. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about like, you know, picking at something, fidgeting, swaying back and forth, tapping with your fingers or your toes, um, biting, you know, biting your lips or or your uh, fingernails, uh, rapid eye movement, not being able to keep your eyes still, uh, clenching your jaw. These are all anxious tics, okay? So these all stem from anxiety, okay? And they can be an acute anxious symptom so if you are nervous for that interview you might be pacing, you might be fidgety. But anxiety as a long term experience you could demonstrate these on a chronic basis. So a part of things like autism ADHD, you can have and even like OCD and schizophrenia and all this. you can have a sub layer of anxiety and that anxiety is really dealing these symptoms of these anxious ticks. So what it really is all coming down to is the nervous system and the nervous system is not regulated. It's dysregulated. So with all of these conditions, it comes down to the nervous system not being regulated and the nervous system, just to have a good understanding of it. I mentioned it earlier, but it is the central and per- peripheral nervous systems. We have the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, and then the peripheral, which is all of the nerves outside of the brain and spinal cord. So like, I think it's important that we understand that there are layers to all of these conditions and all of these experiences. And what it comes down to is their nervous system. The nervous system is somehow not regulating properly. Bottom line. Now, a a big Part of my podcast, a big theme in my podcast, and you should be able to pick up on this during different episodes, is that trauma is discussed a lot in my podcast and childhood trauma, especially. And we've also brought up, we have also brought up epigenetic trauma, generational trauma, ancestral trauma, which all are interrelated. They're all kind of the same thing. So. When we hear the word trauma, it doesn't necessarily mean something huge, major, obvious. It can be something very subtle. Remember at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that children are sponges. We know this. We understand that they see, hear, feel um, tension, stress, um, pick up on trauma of you know, who is caring for us or who that, who we are around when we are young. And within the first five years, this is where a child's neuroplasticity is just thirsty and soaking up everything. And so this in the first five years, this is where things become very complex, complexly and deeply ingrained in us. Um, as a sort of trauma if we are exposed to stress, tension, or trauma of others. So this could be that even in the womb. Even in the womb, um, the ner- if the nervous system of the mother is not regulated, this can feed into and affect the nervous system of the unborn child and carry with them. Um, and so again, and through up until five years old, um, this is where a lot of those deep rooted, deep seated child trauma developed, um, behaviors that we later on just do in life. We may not even connect the dots that... Oh, I do this because of what happened to me when, or what I was exposed to when I was one or when I was in the womb. And this can go back generations. They're finding, they're finding that generational trauma, it can be passed on. So I can literally be carrying trauma with me from my grandma who was going through like born in the middle of the great depression. Okay. So, and I can maybe even look back on habits and traits that I have that she had and go, oh, that's where that's from. Now, again, a lot of this trauma, this unspoken, unheard, unrealized trauma of when we were really young, again, might be very hard to figure out. And so you don't necessarily have to try to dig to find exactly what trauma you were exposed to. There are techniques and ways of overcoming your response, your trauma response, or your nervous system response from this generational trauma, epigenetic trauma, um, without even necessarily trying to have to like hash up exactly what happened to you. So yeah, because I can probably be, pretty impossible to do. So, but we talk about that in other episodes. So feel free to go into my other episodes to check some of that stuff out. All right. So what about the word cognitive? You might've heard that word before. So, uh, the Merriam-Webster dictionary says that cognitive cognitive is of relating to, being, or involving conscious intellectual activity, such as thinking, reasoning, or remembering. So cognitive science, if you've ever heard of that, is a study of human perception, thinking, and learning. So it's not necessarily the behavior, but what, how we perceive things, how we think about things, and how we learn. So that's cognitive. So if you ever heard hear the term cognitive behavior, um, like cognitive behavioral therapy, Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is looking at the patterns of how somebody um, reasons, uh, perceives things, thinks, and learns, and remembers things, and tries to help change it. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a form of neural rewiring, and it seems to be pretty effective. And it's actually used a lot with um, people um, and children, especially on the spectrum. So it can be very helpful. Now, somatic, you might've heard this word tossed around. I mention it quite a bit. Um, I refer to myself as a somatic practitioner. And what that means is that somatic means of the body. So soma is the physical aspect of an organism aside from reproductive cells. So every part of me, aside from my reproductive cells, is soma, the body. So somatic, body. Now we might've heard the term psychosomatic, right? That's putting psychological and somatic, the body together. So psychosomatic means how the mind can affect the body and vice versa. So like a physical illness, um, that can be caused by an emotional psychiatric condition or stress. The thing is, is that a psychosomatic response is real. Um, it should never be discounted by a physician. So we might've heard that, uh, a doctor might brush off your, your neck pain to, um, or your headaches to anxiety, you know? Okay. De-stress. Yeah. T- like, seriously, like, yes, he might kind of like nonchalantly throw that out. Yeah, it's just because of your stress levels and you need to decrease your stress. Th- then do that because it's a real thing. You're, you're, the way you psychological, psychologically respond to something will affect the body. This has been shown and earlier, we were talking about how the brain and the body do work together. And and they communicate and they function together in unison as a team. They are meant to. And so when we have a physical disturbance, that can affect us psychologically, right? And then if we have a psychological disturbance, that can affect our body, our physical self. So psychosomatic is a real thing. And it's a really cool word too. <laughs> um, Here's a fun one, placebo effect, placebo effect. Oftentimes I hear people's arguments say, well, it was, it's just a placebo effect. Okay. But what's really cool is that science has proven the scientific, the placebo effect to be real and authentic. So let me read something to you out of um, uh, Oxford uh, uh, University shared this. A beneficial effect produced by a placebo drug or treatment, which cannot be attributed to the properties of the placebo itself and must therefore be due to the patient's belief in that treatment. And we've discovered that belief can be a very powerful resource for somebody to overcome something or to get better. Um, and to heal from something. And there are scientific studies out there studying belief and how it affects the physical self. It's real. Now, this article from Harvard says this, how placebos work is still not quite understood, but it it does involve a complex neurobiological reaction that includes everything from increases in the feel-good neurotransmitters, such as endorphins and dopamine, to greater activity in certain brain regions linked to moods, emotional reactions, and self-awareness. All of it can have a therapeutic benefit. The placebo effect is a way for your brain to tell the body what it needs to feel better. I want to read that again. The placebo effect is a way for your brain to tell the body what it needs to feel better. Now, I would say it's more of that the brain is getting a message from the body and what the body needs to feel better because my absolute hands down belief is that the body is the messenger um, and communicator for us, but the brain is what is interpreting what the body's message is. Okay. So I'm just reversing that a little bit. I would rather say The placebo effect is a way for your body to tell the brain what it needs to feel better. So it's like taking a common trial placebo, a sugar pill versus a medication. Somebody gives you a sugar pill and you don't know if it's a sugar pill or a medication, but your brain is going... I think I'm taking the medication and it is going to work. It's going to be effective. And if your body responds in a positive way, then that means that your body is telling you that this concept of treating whatever it is that you're dealing with, um, that basically your belief is overriding, whatever it is that you're taking, especially if it is a sugar pill, especially if it is a placebo. So it's not the sugar pill that's making you feel better. It's your belief that the sugar pill and knowing that it's a sugar pill is making you better. So you can only imagine if somebody says here, try this, it works. Um, and you have this strong belief that it works. It's not necessarily that it's that substance that's working. It's that your body is responding to your belief that it's working. And yes, they're obviously still trying to connect the dots and figure this out on how this works. And I think that this is absolutely fascinating and I would love to continue to do more research and follow this or even just be in the midst of this research myself to better understand the placebo effect, but it works. So if anybody ever says, oh, that's just a placebo effect, say, yeah, and? Okay, well, let's kind of go along with this. Let's talk about the body's healing process. Your body is meant to heal itself, it is designed to heal itself. We have to learn how to listen to it and understand what it wants and what it needs in order to heal. Like, for instance, we know we very well know that if we are um, feeling overwhelmed and stressed and exhausted, that's our body saying, hey, you need to slow down and rest, right? So it knows what it needs. It's telling you all the time. Well, the healing process of the body starts at the cellular level. So it might not be noticeable at first. It takes time. So cells react to a stress, whether it be solely emotional and mental stress or it be a physical stress like um, an illness or an injury. Now let's talk about symptoms. So when we experience symptoms, um, let's talk about like symptoms that might be because the body's immune system is responding to a foreign substance such as a virus or bacteria. This would be in the form of a fever, a cough, a sore throat, sneeze, chills, and so on. So those are physical symptoms, but it's actually the body's immune response to the foreign substance um, or stress or impact. As for the mental and emotional symptoms, this is via the autonomic nervous system. So we've heard of sympathetic versus parasympathetic. Sympathetic is the, um, the fight or flight or freeze side of our nervous system. And then we have the parasympathetic nervous response, which is our rest and digest the calmer nervous system right so those are nervous system uh symptoms is when we experience um anxiety or depression and whatnot Um, it comes out in autonomic responses such as um, the fidgetiness or rapid heart rate or um, shallow breathing with anxiety, um, or lethargy with depression. These are all symptoms, right? And all of which should be a temporary experience while, while our body repairs or regulates. So feeling these symptoms are meant to be temporary while the body is in state of repair, or regulation it wants to come back to homeostatic state our body wants to be in homeostasis so symptoms are the way that the body attempts to come back to a homeostatic state balance right okay so now let's talk about how there are different techniques and therapies and treatments out there and Lately, we've been hearing a lot about mindfulness and awareness. Well, what's the difference? Well, let's talk about that. Okay, so mindfulness is a non judgmental focusing or interception practice. So what's happening internally in your body in the present moment via our thoughts or sensations in the body. Then we have Um, awareness. And mindfulness can enhance our awareness. But awareness itself is the ability to tap into all of our senses, our sight, our hearing, our taste, our smell, and our touch, and being more aware um, with uh, the outward um, external uh, contributions to our thoughts and emotions and feelings and behavior. Mindfulness is a conscious tuning in, uh, whereas awareness is being curious. I guess that's a good way to put it. So I'm, I hope that that makes sense, but both are wonderful practices and they, they do, um, they do intertwine and work together. Now let's talk about natural and holistic. I hear these terms often, I use these terms often, but I think it's very important that we understand that natural and holistic are completely different terms. Natural means um, there's like no harsh chemicals, substance, um, or other ingredients that could be deemed as harmful when when we're talking about something that we might um, consume or apply. Um, but then it can also mean a, an approach. So something that is not harmful and it's, um, it, that it, you know, there's, uh, limitations to its uh, any negative impacts. So that's what natural means. And I can go on and on and talk about, okay, well, what do we consider natural these days? I hear a lot of that because even plants can be toxic. Um, There are toxic plants out there. There is a toxic level of consumption of uh, plants, essential oils, vitamins, minerals, so on and so forth. So what really is natural, right? Then there's holistic. Holistic does not mean natural holistic. If you think about it, if you peel it back, it means whole. So such as I'm whole or the whole thing. Um, holistic is where all parts are interconnected. It's an understanding that all parts are connected like our brain and our body. So in some medicine studies, such as Ayurveda, which is an ancient medicinal practice found in um, Southeast Asia, um, it's all about treating the whole self. The brain and the body are not separate. Um, you're not just looking at the symptoms, but you're actually looking at all the contributing factors, all the causes that feed into the symptoms you're experiencing. So that's what holistic is. Holistic is an interconnected view, perspective, and practice. Whereas natural means the least amount of harsh, um, uh, ingredients or, um, impact to the body or the brain all right well that concludes my very first episode of did you know and I plan to do more of these, if you have any request of anything that you want a little bit more understanding of, a little bit more clarification on, I am definitely happy to bring that for you to the best of my ability. I can do my research, I can look into it if it's something that I'm still fuzzy on and share with you what I find and point you in the direction of different sources. Um, but yeah, I would definitely be happy to do more of these and uh shape it around what um information you would like more of. So you can always send a request to healingwithsway at outlook.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and be well.